Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about John Mearsheimer, Alexander Wendt, and international relations theory. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the different core international relations theory schools, those being the realists, the liberals, the Marxists, and the constructivists. But we're going to anchor it around Mearsheimer and Wendt. Mearsheimer, of course, a realist, Wendt a constructivist. But the Marxists and the liberals will certainly, certainly feature in today's episode as well. And, uh, of course, full disclosure, before I came to Cambridge for my PhD, I did a master's at University of Chicago where I took American Grand Strategy with John Mearsheimer. So I am quite acquainted with him and his approach. Uh, in, In brief... The major distinctions are that the realists in international relations theory believe that international politics is determined by the balance of power among states. Uh, The stronger states exercise more influence than the weaker states, and the larger the gap between the strongest state or the strongest states and other states, the more power those strongest states are going to have in the system and that international politics is mainly about states. Liberal theorists think that international politics is more cooperative than realists and occurs more at the level of international norms and international institutions. Uh, And therefore, it is determined not by particular states, but by these amalgamations of norms and institutions. Okay? Institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, NATO, NAFTA, etc., etc. The Marxists believe that international politics is mainly shaped by class conflict and by the global capitalist class, which is transnational and doesn't have any particular state loyalty. Uh, However, there are cores and peripheries. There are parts of the world that are doing the extracting in general, and parts of the world that are peripheral, that are being exploited more heavily, and that there are kind of levels of exploitation. So, for instance, the uh, metropolitan cores of very wealthy Western states are the most core. Then there is a periphery in the rural areas of those rich states, and then, of course, a further periphery in the developing world. And in the the capital cities and large cities of the developing world where local elites play a managerial role. And then a further periphery beyond that in the rural parts of the the developing world, uh, those areas which are extracted even by the elites in developing world cities. Fourth, there's the constructivists. And the constructivist position is more a critique of the previous three than it is necessarily its own substantive lens. The main point of the constructivists is that the way we think about international politics shapes what international politics is and how it works, and that therefore international politics doesn't have to be 
any one of these three in particular, but could be anything that becomes sufficiently dominant in the discourse. Right. Now, subconstructivists have a more demanding notion of what it would take for a discourse to become dominant that would displace one or more of those preceding three discourses. Others are looser and think that it's much easier to reimagine or reconceive international politics. But the main core argument of the constructivists is that we are not limited by those three preceding perspectives. Okay? So Alexander Wendt is in the constructivist camp, John Mearsheimer is in the realist camp, and we'll also talk about some Marxists and liberals along the way. The way that John always explained his difference with Alexander Wendt, and John had a Brooklyn accent because he grew up in New York around the same time Bernie Sanders did. John would always say, the thing about Alex is that Alex thinks that you're all realist because I make you realist because I teach you realism. But I think you would all be good little realist boys and girls regardless of whether or not I taught you realism because you have ears to hear and eyes to see. That was the fundamental difference. For John, realism came out of observing the world. And if you're in the world and you're looking at it and you're not stupid, you're going to notice the way the world works. And that's going to cause you to view the world in the way realists view it. For Alexander Wendt, it was the way in which you were taught international politics that caused you to be a realist. And if you could be taught international politics in a different way, you would think about it differently. And then you wouldn't necessarily reproduce the same dynamics we've seen in international politics for the last seven, several hundred years. Uh, Liberals are kind of similar to constructivists in this respect, insofar as they think that norms and institutions can construct new incentive environments that break us out of historical patterns in international politics. Um, the reason that the realists don't buy this is that the realists think the fundamental fact which conditions international politics is anarchy, the fact that there is no central authority that all states answer to, and therefore, if you want any kind of rule enforced in international politics, you have to ultimately have the backing of one, of, of one or more powerful states. And therefore, realists think that the international organizations cannot substantiate independent checks on states, but instead can only exercise power through the continuing consent and support of the powerful states. And in the contemporary world, that's especially the United States of America. So that's a kind of five-minute basic summary, and Edmund, I'm sure, has got some lovely thoughts for us now about who's stronger and who's weaker and whose arguments make more sense. Mm. What do you think, Edmund? I think one big uh, dividing line running through these theories is a divide, uh, you often talk about, Benjamin, the divide between materialism and idealism, people who emphasize uh, material forces in history um, as the drivers of social evolution and people who emphasize um, ideas and their role. So, um, with reference to the IR theories, constructivists, um, and some liberals tend to be idealists, 
whereas uh, Marxists, realists, and other liberals tend to be materialists. And I think it is notable that the liberals don't straightforwardly fit into either camp, because I guess liberalism both has this normative angle of saying that the individual counts and matters and should be um, preserved and their liberty protected um, versus the descriptive side of this is how liberty is protected and this is how the system works, the side which emphasises private vices, public virtues, as Mandeville put it, which emphasised turning turning rational egoists into a market uh, by the invisible hand of market competition um, into people who are producing what's best for the community. And I think this this, um, divide between the normative and the descriptive aspects of liberalism continues in IR theory. There's, on the one hand, liberals who say that uh, in a more idealist way, this is how the world should work. We live in this liberal world system where we've got these liberal norms. So this might be a kind of more constructivist liberalism, which says that it's the norms, it's the culture of liberal values and the love of the individual, which is the root of peace. And the fact that liberal democracy triumphed is no surprise because liberal democracy is, as Francis Fukuyama put it, um, in you know, after the Berlin Wall in 1989, and then in 1992, a year after the Soviet Union collapsed in his book, uh, The End of History and the Last Man, liberal democracy is the final form of human government, he said, the end of history. It is the best system. And because it is the best system, people recognise it as the best system and therefore it spreads. So a bit of an is-ought fallacy there, saying that something ought to be the case, therefore it is the case. But also this teleological idea that because Liberal democracy is the end game because it is the telos, the the end. Uh, that's why it's become dominant. Um, and uh, as well as that idealist branch of liberalism, you've got the um, realist side of liberalism, the side that doesn't necessarily emphasise power because uh, liberals of all camps try to downplay inequalities and coercion within the world system because it is... Um, in name at least, a liberal world system right now, um, or has been. But they do emphasise material factors. People um, call themselves rational institutionalists, emphasise the role of institutions in generating shared prosperity uh, for uh, different actors in the world system. Um, Absolute gains rather than relative gains, where everybody benefits. It's a positive-sum game rather than the zero-sum game where um, if person A benefits, then person B or state B can't benefit. And um, the rational institutionalists try to say that because there's been so much trade and there's been a relative decline in the incidence um, of interstate wars, at least in Europe in the past uh, few decades, this rational institutionalists and other liberal theorists' reason is the product of economic globalisation and institutions. Um, uh, 
there are generally three kinds of uh, international relations liberal theories. The democratic peace theorists who say that because um, democracy has spread, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union, because democracies are nice to each other, according to this theory, uh, there is more peace uh, between them. And then there's also the economic interdependence theorists who say that uh, because there's more trade, the costs of war are higher. And so war has become, as Norman Angle put it in uh, 1910, uh, a, a great illusion. Uh, um, some irony there, given that war broke out four years after um, Angle wrote that book, The Great Illusion. Um, but there's also uh, the, the institutionalists, the people who emphasise the role of the United Nations, of the IMF and the World Bank in uh, creating shared prosperity by sharing information between states, um, by trying to reduce transaction costs, trying to uh, persuade people who may be inclined to cheat that they shouldn't cheat, uh, by um, perhaps creating enforcement mechanisms. And this is the side of liberal theory that verges on realism. The people who say that institutions matter because they can sanction um, cheating, they can sanction free riding on the rules. And uh, there is, uh, in this sense, some overlap between rational institutionalism and liberalism. Uh, John Mersheimer uh, has... Um, while distinguishing himself from liberals, called lots of liberals closet institution, uh, closet realists. He's uh, said that uh, people like uh, Robert Keohain, who wrote the uh, book After Hegemony um, back in the 80s about how after the end of US hegemony, uh, a bit early perhaps to say that, but that's his argument, um, you can have cooperation in the world through institutions. And he argues that this is because um, of the basic utility of liberal institutions and the liberal world economy to satisfy states' interests, and particularly powerful states' interests. And it's that dimension of liberalism, um, not just the dimension that emphasises material interests, but the occasions when liberals do admit that it's also power and inequalities of who can satisfy their material interests, who can't, um, that that might also play a role. And I think um, though liberalism is often caricatured as um, in international relations very idealist, there are at least some liberals who are prepared to concede to John that um, at the end of the day it is... Um, power distributions between states that strongly condition how useful, how productive institutions and the capitalist economy are. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Edmund. And, and to kind of summarize, summarize all of that, I think, in a, in a schematic, what you've kind of done there is you've laid out three different liberal positions that sit between Mearsheimer and Wendt. So there's an institutionalist position which is closest to Mearsheimer in which institutions essentially are mechanisms for states to condition the incentive environment for other states. And that isn't that different from realism, except insofar as it's emphasizing the independent power of the institution once it's been constituted. 
rather than states per se, mm. and that it's emphasizing uh, absolute gains rather than relative gains. For John, it's important that you be the most powerful state because, as John says, you don't want to be Bambi, you want to be Godzilla. Because the more power you have, the more capacity you have to condition institutions and the more capacity you have to push everybody else around and, and be, as John says, free to roam and stick your nose in everybody's business. Right? Uh, that institutionalist camp is closest to John, but because it's interested in absolute gains rather than relative gains and because it tends to focus on institutions in and of themselves rather than as outputs of states, it's still meaningfully different from John's position. Then there's the democratic peace theorists who are interested mainly in liberal democracy as a regime type, which spreads and creates zones of peace. This, I think, played a significant role in influencing the Bush administration's interventions in the Middle East. This attempt to create a sea of democracies that would therefore bring peace and, or as John would say, peace, love, and dope to the Middle East, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and then a version of liberalism which is more interested in norms and which therefore bends in the direction of constructivism and which is much looser because it's about culture and behavior rather than institutions. Focusing on institutions renders the liberalism more concrete and therefore closer to the realist position. Does that sound like a good overview of what you're getting at with that set of three? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, yeah. The, 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 uh... Yeah, the institutionalists and the economic interdependence theorists definitely tend to be, yeah, close to the realists than the democratic peace theorists. It's interesting, though, that though there are uh, the three camps of economic interdependence, democratic peace theory, and rational institutionalism, in IR theory, at least, the economic interdependence tend to, tends not to be emphasised as much as the rational institutionalism, partly because it's international relations, IR, rather than international political economy. And there is this question of um, how useful IR is, because even rational institutionalists who try to downplay the role of military power are still dealing primarily with the political institutions that mediate um, economic flows and um, often aren't trained political economists as such. Um, but I guess that's the question in general with IR theory, that people doing IR theory aren't necessarily a specialist in um, history, which is the closest discipline perhaps to realism, or um, uh, that, that, that there's a joke uh, about the three theories uh, that, um, excluding Marxism, that realism is bad history, um, constructivism is bad sociology, and um, institutionalism is, um, liberal institutionalism is bad economics. Um, um, but I, I guess that is, you know, because the joke applies to all three theories, symptomatic of all of them. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that it's- John always, always liked to say that he himself is a liberal in domestic politics. A left liberal, he endorsed Bernie Sanders mm. in, uh, for, for 2020. But John likes liberalism domestically in the United States, but he doesn't like liberalism in international politics. 
And John said that in international politics, he tends to find he is more in common with the Marxists than he does the liberals. Mm. Because the Marxists, in being interested in the distribution of money and, and stuff, are closer to his interest in the distribution of power. Mm. And share with him an embeddedness in the material. Mm. And I always thought that was interesting. John sometimes gets stereotyped as conservative because he's a realist. Yeah. And I think a lot of non-realists stereotype the realists as conservative or even reactionary. Mm. But John was for Bernie Sanders. John was against Iraq. A lot of realists were, were against Iraq, whereas many liberals were for it. Mm. Yeah. And why, why was that? Well, because a lot of liberals could believe that by spreading democracy or by spreading capitalism into the Middle East, economic interdependence or uh, democratic zones of peace would significantly improve the Middle East in some way, shape, or form. Because they're committed to the idea that these are the things that create peace and prosperity. John, on the other hand, thinks that Commitments that local populations have to their states are a lot stronger than that and tend to get in the way of any attempt to spread liberalism or democracy by the sword. Uh, that in doing that, you will chafe against local populations, more communitarian commitments, mm. or even nationalist commitments. And this is where. I think John really separates himself from the liberals because John really thinks that not only do states matter internationally, but John also thinks that ordinary people are much more committed to their states than liberal institutionalists tend to believe or that liberals of all stripes tend to believe. I guess there's also the issue of Mirschheimer does to some degree um, emphasize that international organizations um, have limited or no agency in themselves. He tries to frame them as, um, as the realist political economist Susan Strange put it, that uh, international organizations are the, uh, the puppets of powerful states. Um, and John tries to make the argument that states wouldn't, at the point of delegation, delegate power to international organisations if it wasn't in their interests to do so. And therefore it's the underlying economic, political, um, military distributions of capabilities among states, um, John argues, that determines how these international organisations um, behave rather than something intrinsic to the international organizations themselves and originating with them. So, you know, with the IMF or the World Bank, their support for structural adjustment programs in uh, the third world um, is in large part a result of US economic interests um, and the use of... Uh, organizations like the WTO to uh, 
basically prop up European and American uh, trading interests at the expense of third world trading interests. This is one of the reasons why America um, hasn't allowed a WTO deal to be done um, since the 90s. And so there is this uh, major clash in liberal versus realist thought about the autonomy of international organisations. Um, because if international organisations do have significant autonomy, then this in theory reinforces the liberal argument that international organisations matter in themselves and can create peace in themselves. But then again, even if international organisations sometimes have autonomy and uh, sometimes both have autonomy and some degree of coercive power, there still, even in that case, isn't a guarantee that they'll work as the Liberals want them to work. There isn't a guarantee, in other words, that the international organisations won't, once they've got the power and some degree of autonomy, um, won't start using that power just as a normal state would. Uh, there's no reason why Mearsheimer's logic can't apply to international organisations too if they were to become state-like. Yeah, I think that the most plausible argument for institutions gaining power of their own would be at some distance after their creation, because of course, when they're created, they are created by states for state purposes. But we could imagine a world where the states that created the institutions decline and become less relevant, yet the institutions remain. Mm. And what would become of the institutions without the states which originally created them? Well, one possibility is that it wouldn't they would simply have to go away or be reformed or, or recreated by the new states that are powerful. That the institutions would have to go away along with the states which created them. Uh, but I don't think that's obviously the case. The liberal position, uh, especially the more norm-oriented liberal position, is that the institutions can create and foster norms among the states that enables them to continue to heavily shape and guide behavior even without the backing of the original state or group of states which gave them life. I'm, I'm dubious of that position. I think that, that goes too far in the opposite direction. Mm. But could we, could we have a world where there's a certain amount of inertia which makes it quite difficult for the states which originally gave rise to these institutions to challenge them or undermine them? Where those institutions start to have a little bit of a disharmony in their normativity from the original states which created them. Mm but not to the point where those states feel that they can do away with those institutions. Mm. Like, this is a, 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 bit, a bit complicated, but I'm, I'm thinking about in the, in the kind of post-70s neoliberal era, there has been gradually a subordination of states to markets where state power isn't necessarily minimized. People sometimes think of neoliberalism as something that's all about shrinking the state or making the state as weak as, as possible, but that's not the case. The point is to instrumentalize the state to service the market. Yes. And that means sometimes the state will be quite active and quite big and do quite a lot, but in service of sustaining and perpetuating markets. 
if a set of international institutions can be set up that creates uh, a scenario where it's very difficult for any state to defect from that set of economic policies without severe political consequences, i.e. losing the next election mm. or even you know, an acute legitimacy crisis leading to regime collapse or a coup or something like that. Uh, if you're in that kind of environment, then those states do not have control over those institutions. Mm. Yet, uh, it, but yet it's not as if the institutions have coercive force, have military force, which enables them to compel the states. It's purely on the basis of what economic penalties they can subject the states to. Right, economic And flowing right. on from that, what domestic electoral or, or political problems they can inflict upon those non-compliant states. Mm. And I think if, if you're imagining a world where the United States has declined significantly to the point where it is no longer capable of unilaterally dismantling the institutions or reconstructing them, if you think that's the world, then there could be a case to be made for this argument. Mm. If the United States doesn't have that kind of hegemony and no other state has replaced it or taken on the role that it used to play. Mm. Now, has the United States declined in that way such that that kind of theory might be plausibly right? I think it's very unclear how powerful the United States is. Mm. I think that's kind of the big question in international relations that is hovering beneath the surface of everything else. Because if the United States is obscenely powerful but has just chosen not to mess with the international economic system because it takes the international economic system to be straightforwardly in its interest, regardless of whether or not that still remains the case. If the United States is thinking about it that way, uh, then it's not going to make any attempt to revise the system. And therefore, we aren't going to discover whether or not it's capable of revising the system. And if you think that the current international economic system isn't in the United States' interest, it's going to look like the United States is incompetent or incapable of making the revision. But it might be the case that the American state views the situation differently from the way the critics view the state and uh, view the situation. And if the American state views the international economic order as broadly in its interests, then its inaction does not stem from lack of capacity but from a belief that the system services it plenty fine. Mm. Uh, and so I think there are some people who are expecting states to revise the system and who are going, well, if they're not revising the system, it's because they can't. It might be because they just don't want to, because they view the situation differently. Now, is that because it is genuinely the case that these economic systems service these states, or is it because those states at this point so heavily service the market that their own self-understanding is compliant with servicing the market, is, is, uh, is compatible with servicing the market? Mm. I think that's, it's quite difficult to untangle that. Mm. Now, John, I think, gives you a standard that you can use straightforwardly here, which is 
a state is acting in its interests if it's increasing its relative power in comparison with other states. Hmm. And it's acting against its you know, strict realist national interest if it's behaving in a way which causes its relative power to decline. If you think about it in those terms, then you can ask yourself more straightforwardly if participation in the international economic order is in the interest of a state, right? Leaving aside, of course, all the other different ways of conceptualizing what's in the interest of a state. Is there, is there an actual antagonism between the state interest and the international economic system in, in that Mearsheimer type sense? I think the answer is that for some states, there clearly is some level of antagonism. Mm. But that that antagonism is largely created you know, by the international economic order itself. Right? The reason that it's not in Greece's interest to deviate from the international economic order is that Greece will be heavily, heavily penalized by that order if it deviates. Yeah. To the point where it's nonsense to even ask if Greece could have a functional alternative way of being outside of the order, because the order will ensure that that can't happen. Mm. And I think that's largely true of most developing states. Most developing states are in a situation where a, acting outside the order is not an option because the order will ensure that that is a failure. Mm. The order will make that uncompetitive behavior, regardless of whether or not it otherwise would be in a vacuum. Yeah. At the same time, there are some states that I think are clearly benefiting in relative terms from this system, uh, like Germany. Yeah. I think Germany is very clearly advantaged by the international economic system and that there's no conflict between Mearsheimer-type national interest and the international economic order for Germany. Yeah at least in the short to medium term. You could make an argument that in the long term, the system is unsustainable for the European Union. The European Union will break apart and therefore Germany should restructure it now rather than wait for it to blow apart later. Mm. But the Germans clearly believe that they're capable of keeping the thing going and, and that that isn't their choice, that they're not in that situation. Mm. Uh, and the Germans also, I think, are constrained by domestic political concerns. Mm. Whether their own voters would accept the kind of restructuring that that would call for. And a German government has to worry more about re-election mm. than those long-term concerns. Mm. Uh, but if you're going to make an argument that it's in the national interest for a state to stay part of the order, I think Germany would be a good a good case for that. Yeah. The United States, I think it, this is where Marxism is, is most helpful. In the United States, it's clearly in, in the interest of some people for the United States to maintain the international economic order more or less as it is. But it is definitely not in the interests of everybody in the United States. Yeah. And that's where I think the Marxist lens has quite a bit of purchase in explaining the internal domestic politics of the United States. Mm. And insofar as the United States is the big, powerful state with the capacity to reshape the world, um, that those domestic politics, I think, matter a great deal for international politics. 
Yeah. That kind of fits with Mearsheimer's case in the sense that the US being the unipole or most powerful state in the system from uh, 1992, perhaps now, um, perhaps earlier, perhaps later, um, means that it's in the US that domestic politics uh, to some degree matters the most. Or at least it's in powerful states in general that domestic politics matters the most because economic integration produces these pressures which force smaller states to um, acquiesce to the needs of powerful states and markets um, through capital flight and also through... um, sometimes straightforward sanctions by powerful states. Smaller states are coerced into uh, abiding by the rules laid down by powerful states, in particular by the US. Um, And I guess this is... And John, when when John explained uh, why he was supporting Bernie Sanders in 2020, His reason for this is that he thinks economic inequality is the most significant political problem currently faced by the United States. And that is very much a domestic problem. Yeah. Although it's one which comes out of the international economic order. And John's more recent work on the problems with liberal hegemony, I think... Mm -hmm brushes up against very often some of the arguments which Marxists make. Yeah, it definitely does, yeah. 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 And this is where the boundaries among the, the different groups start to get a little bit thinner. You know, when we, when we began the episode, I tried to be very schematic and, and lay them out in kind of ideal types, which set them out to be very different from each other. But there's a lot of blurring. And John, when, when John... Uh, talks about theories and and how theories work in international politics. John says that a good theory, a good theory is right maybe two-thirds or three-quarters of the time. Right? For John, none of these theories in its pure form is going to have universal explanatory power. Yeah. And there are going to be circumstances where other considerations become really important. And I think that domestic politics, if you're a powerful state, is really important. And if you're a weak state, international institutions are important because you don't have the capacity to revise them. Mm. That's how I think this ought to be squared. Mm. It matters very much how powerful your state is, because if you have a powerful state, then there's an opportunity for your domestic institutions to matter. If you have a weak state, your domestic institutions will never matter because your domestic institutions will be overdetermined by the international economic order Mm. or the international security order if you're living in something like the Cold War. Mm. That's how I think I would would revise this. I, I have always been reluctant to embrace the constructivist position because, as, as longtime listeners know, 
I just don't go in for idealism enough. I don't think it's possible for us to talk our way into a different international politics. Uh, I think that we've got to create structures which make that feel plausible to people, if only because, and this is where some of the Hobbes influence on me comes to the fore, it only takes a relatively small amount of noncompliance for a cooperative scheme to come apart. Mm. It only takes a little bit. And John says that his whole theory of international politics is just Hobbes applied to international politics. Yeah. And when John sets out in his magnum opus, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, the core reasons that he thinks the world is the way it is, they're all Habesian claims. Yeah. Uh, all states have some level of offensive capability. States can't know each other's intentions. And states are competing for scarce power, scarce security, scarce resources. Mm. And as long as states are in this kind of situation where they are going to want things that other states also want or have, they're not going to know other states' intentions, and they have some ability to hurt each other, there's going to be a security dilemma for states to some degree. Mm. And so if you really want to change the way people think about international politics, you have to change the core background conditions, which shape the way states perceive their environment. Now, I think that international institutions have to some degree made some change to that environment by putting a lot of states in an economic situation where their domestic policy just doesn't matter very much, where they have very little real power over their economic affairs. And this is, I think, one of the great lies of, of decolonization, you know, that all of these states got political independence, but they were immediately bound up within an international economic system that heavily constrains their ability to maneuver and to choose their own paths and forge their own ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. At, at the same time, uh, I think that if you are a powerful state, there are definitely ways in which you can make a mess of these international institutions. And if there weren't, liberals wouldn't be so worried about the Trumps and yeah. the Johnsons yeah. of the world. And the fact that liberals are so worried about individual people... Mm. Now, in the 2000s, they were worried about rogue states. You know, the language of the 2000s was rogue states. Yeah. Uh, now it's not rogue states. Now it's just a president or a prime minister who maybe doesn't value the liberal order. Yeah. In the way that they think it ought to be valued. If that's an existential threat to the liberal order, then these international institutions are more fragile than in the 2000s they were often portrayed to be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. If Donald Trump is an existential threat, if, if Donald Trump winning the election is an existential threat to the liberal order, it's a very fragile order. Now, I don't think it's quite that fragile. I think that the threat 
of those guys to the liberal order has been somewhat oversold. Yeah. Uh, insofar as we haven't seen Trump and Johnson really challenge the order in a serious way. You know, we've seen them do a lot of performative violations of the norms, but in terms of the economic entanglement, Trump may say, I don't like NAFTA, I want to get rid of NAFTA, but he then replaces NAFTA with a new trade agreement that is 99% identical to NAFTA. Mm. Uh, Trump says, oh, I want to get out of NATO, and then of course, we don't we don't get out of NATO. And it's all a way of trying to get European states to spend more money on defense. Boris Johnson says, oh, yes, we're going to do Brexit and then cuts a deal with the European Union, which preserves, for the most part, the exit trading relationship. Mm. These leaders have not been nearly as willing to challenge the order as they claim to be in public. Mm. But could they eventually give rise to leaders who are actually interested in challenging the order? And could those leaders actually challenge it, perhaps challenge it successfully? I don't think that's necessarily the case in Britain. I think in Britain, you could get a leader who might try it, but I don't think it would work. Uh, In the United States, maybe it would work. And that's where that question about how powerful is the United States, I think that's where it really comes into play. And there are three different levels of power the United States could have in international politics. One would be the ability to construct a new international order in the way that the United States constructed an international order at the end of World War II. The second would be the power to destroy this international order without replacing it. just, Just gutting the international economic order. Uh, And I think a United States, which say, got into some kind of conflict with China, that could be sufficiently disruptive to international trade that it could just bring down the whole international economic order. Now, liberal institutionals will say that for that reason, the United States will not get into any kind of conflict with China. And that's why John has focused so much over the last couple of decades on that question of can China rise peacefully? Mm. Will there be continued peace between the United States and China because of economic entanglement or will those things come apart? Uh, But that would be the middle level, the ability to destroy the international order without creating a new one. Mm. And then, of course, the third would be that the United States is now so weak that it is actually constrained by the order which it helped to create and is now not in a meaningfully different position from the other states in the system. Mm. I think that that is a very, you know, a lot of people are drawn to that third possibility because it's interesting, the idea that the United States could make a system that's so giant that even it can't manage it anymore. But I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. I think it's very easy to defend the idea that the United States could destroy the extant international system if it wanted to. Mm. And I think that it's interesting. I think you could make a push for the United States being able to restructure the international system. Uh, I think that would be harder to argue for, but but you could you could still try to argue for that. Mm. That's where I think that's where I think it is, and so I think that the Marxism comes in in explaining the internal domestic politics of the United States. Um. And I think also if you were to say, look at the internal domestic politics of the European Union, Marxism would be very, very helpful to you. 
I think in general, Marxism is very helpful with internal domestic politics. Mm. Um, but we, we can't mistake the role states play in constructing the international system. We can't uh, throw that out. It's not as if the international system is stateless and that the global capitalist class is entirely disconnected from states. I think on some level it would like to be totally disconnected from states. I think that's perhaps an ambition that it has, but not one it has yet achieved. Hmm. And I think in that respect, Marxist international relations theory has always to some degree overstated the autonomy of the capitalist class. Yeah. That autonomy is something the capitalist class has been seeking and trying to get through the neoliberal project, but it's not something which it has fully achieved in any kind of sustainable, lasting way. Mm. As evidenced by how much it freaks out every time there's a crisis and the state needs to do something to protect the market, and it becomes so, so concerned that the state is going to do more than just protect the market and in some way reassert itself and and start pushing them around again. Mm. I think there is an awareness on the part of, of the, what Jeffrey Winters would call the civil oligarchy, that the rich do not control the guns now, and therefore their control is entirely on the basis of maintaining uh, ideological domination of the domestic politics of the powerful states. Mm. The power of the rich in the United States is not the rich exercising direct control over the guns, but the rich exercising sufficient influence within domestic politics in the United States that the United States continues to behave in a way which accords with maintaining that liberal international order and the ungoverned, marketized transnational space that that order creates. Yeah. And sustains. Um, if there's a threat to that order, it comes from domestic politics. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's broadly how I would revise how I would revise that stuff a bit. The constructivist position, I think a lot of people are drawn to it because it's it's inspiring the idea that we could we could think about it differently. But Implicit in the constructivist project is some kind of need for an education paradigm. Because if we were to think about it differently, we would have to start teaching it differently. And that would mean first, people who learned international politics the old way would have to nonetheless teach it some other way. Hmm. And then that would need to be sufficiently widespread for that to catch on and displace the extant narratives. Hmm. And I think even if it were theoretically possible to change the way we think about international politics through an education paradigm, it is very hard to imagine what that paradigm would be. It is very hard to imagine how we would ensure that paradigm would be sufficiently widespread. And I think that the critical thing here is that because old-fashioned politics prevails whenever anybody behaves zero-sum, whenever anybody refuses to cooperate, that it's very difficult to get a different kind of politics to catch on internationally because it only takes a very, very limited amount of defection to make it all pointless and cause everyone to revert to 
a more old school way of thinking about it. Mm. And so the level of compliance with the new paradigm that constructivism would need to get would require a level of hegemony that I really struggle to imagine constructivism producing, mm. especially without some kind of tighter link to the resources that are necessary to propagate narratives in our society. Yeah. And who controls those resources, rich people and states. Yeah. And that's why there is an enduring relevance to liberalism, Marxism, and, and realism, because they concern themselves mainly with the influence of rich people and states. I guess the constructivist uh, complaint in general to this idea of states and classes and the distribution of economic and military power among states and classes being primary in international politics and indeed as in society as a whole is that for constructivists particularly Alexander Wendt who is aware of you know the the full breadth of these materialist critiques of idealism and he thinks that the problem with them is that they uh Firstly, he agrees with them that it's true that people tend to worry about their survival, worry about their material capabilities to meet their survival needs when their survival is threatened, when there are those Hobbesian conditions of uh, scarcity and from scarcity uh, competition and there being some threat of death, some threat of death through just not having enough resources, so uh, economic-induced death, but also uh, military-induced death, being conquered or destroyed by other states is a fear that um, states have, realists argue. And Mersheimer therefore uh, tries to frame economic power as a latent power and military power as the real deal. But of course, it's, it's also true that states can die um, without those uh, military uh, wars. They, they can die through not having... Uh, sufficient resources that they can die if they are uh, sanctioned or face capital flight so much that they that there is regime collapse uh, and they can also die through a combination of these factors a combination of um, decline in gdp growth and institutional contradictions within the domestic politics of these states and the collapse of the soviet union might be an example of that um, but what um, Wendt notes is that for realism to be true, there really does have to be a strong survival threat. Um, in this way, I think constructivism is premised on liberalism because it assumes that people's survival needs are met. It assume, assumes that people basically um, 
especially states, because unlike people within states where there is a sovereign to look after your interests and to let you pursue culture um, and other things and knowledge and education, or so Hobbes argues, and the Marxists would have a complaint about that and argue that the market imposes lots of um, perverse survival incentives there. Um, but at the level of the interstate system, um, that's where realists are really insistent that the survival imperative is really strong. But when argues that uh, given the interstate war seems to have um, declined to some degree, the incidence of interstate war and also the overall deadliness of interstate war, the number of battle deaths since the Second World War has declined overall. There are quite a lot of wars happening. But if you total up the number of uh, battle deaths, particularly in Europe and in the core of the world system, uh, the incidence of these deaths has declined um, dramatically in the past few decades. And um, whether that's due to realist factors or constructivist factors, Wendt argues that because survival needs tend to be met, that there is um, sufficient slack in the system for there not to be realist selective pressures mattering a lot. He says um, in Social Theory of International Politics, um, in contemporary international politics, there seems to be a great deal of slack or conversely little selection pressure in the relationship between competition and state survival. If this slack continues, and there is every reason to think it will, uh, natural selection will not be an important factor in the evolution of state identities in the future. And he argues instead that cultural selection, that, uh, that discourse and norms and legitimating ideas tend to be uh, dominant because the survival needs are met, because there's sufficient slack in the system, um, that states aren't too worried about survival, and also there aren't strong selective pressures to weed out, weed out the uh, weak from strong states. Instead, because state survival needs are met, Wendt argues, uh, it tends to be cultural selection rather than more material kinds of social selection that dominate. And, of course, the problem with this, as Tanisha Fazal uh, notes um, in the book, uh, State Death, uh, states still do die. The Soviet Union, the regime, did collapse. And there have been state deaths since then, particularly minor powers. You know, Iraq was uh, basically conquered by the states and replaced by a new government. Um, there have been multiple state deaths. But it is still true that the number of state deaths um, doesn't seem to be as high post-1945 as it was before. Um, and there remains that, that question of how much slack there is and um, whether, you know, whether or not Wentz right. I think it's difficult to argue against the case that there has been at least some slack in the interstate system um, since 1945 for states, and that there has been uh, some degree to which wars are no longer the same threats that they were. They may become greater threats in the future. And indeed, Mearsheimer gives good reason why there may well be a US-Chinese conflict at some point in the future. But for most states right now, wars seem to have been replaced by um, other means of coercion. And I think this is why Wendt is wrong, that even if 
um, interstate war has declined to some degree. Coercion is no less significant and state death is no less of a fear because states still have reason to fear forms of economic coercion through capital flight and sanctions that make, uh, if not state death, then um, we were talking about this a bit before the podcast, but other kinds of death of domestic institutions, of the government collapsing. And these fears that states have of the state dying or the government dying or the regime dying, these are the fears that still underlie international politics and make survival, um, contrary to when, a crucial factor. Yeah, this is, I think, the major weakness of this move. It's a very interesting move, and I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh, But I think the major weakness of the move is that it treats survival too narrowly Mm. as only the absolute collapse of the state. And I think in general, and this has been, I think, a weakness that I try to address in my thesis of the way we think about legitimacy and the survival of states and legitimacy as a driving you know, force in the way states make decisions. If you're only thinking of legitimacy as having been violated when the state actually collapses completely and outright dies, um, you're going to miss a lot of the influence of these factors on states because states are concerned with a lot of other kind, smaller kinds of death, which occur under the same regime type. Mm. So that includes, of course, governments losing elections. Governments worry about losing elections. That's a kind of death, a kind of survival question yeah. that falls short of state collapse. Uh, But it's not just governments surviving. It's also, say, paradigms, consensuses in a country surviving. Mm. You might have a world where both Democrats and Republicans are on the same side uh, versus some new ideology or new way of doing things that attacks both and which pushes them into some kind of alliance with each other. I think recently in British politics, if you go back to 2010, you know, with Nick Clegg and Gordon Brown and David Cameron, all three of those would be on the same side versus Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. And so uh, there's also a a kind of paradigm death that states are trying to avoid. There are so many different kinds of death that are important for states to avoid, and it's not just the collapse of the state. And I think in fairness to the constructivists, the realists tend to pitch it exclusively in terms of collapse of the state. And in this way, they sell their own position short. It's a stronger position when you consider that the person who's making the decisions, the, the president, the king, the prime minister, they have to worry not just about the survival of the state, but about their own political survival. And that means they have to be competitive in terms of what their local populations value. Mm. And that means if you put up a couple of terrible terms of economic growth, you know, a couple terrible quarters, that's not fatal to the state, but it could very well be fatal to the elected government. Yeah. And that is often sufficient to have the same kind of coercive force, or if not the same kind, a very similar kind of coercive force. Mm. to the actual death of the state. Mm. And a lot of the time, the reason that you get into situations where states can die is because the uh, governments to try to survive end up creating situations which in the long run lead to state death. It's when there's a contradiction between the short-term survival interest of the government and the long-term survival interest of the regime. Mm. That's often what fuels 
getting into a crisis that's deep enough for a state to collapse. Because that's how seriously governments take their own political survivability and electoral survivability. And the other thing I thought about as I was listening to you talk about this, uh, anytime anybody challenges John's view or Hobbes's view, they, they have to challenge kind of one of the core premises of the situation. Yeah. Both Hobbes and John describe a kind of basic set of conditions. And if you go back to our first full-length episode on Hobbes and Plato, we talk about this uh, at, at some length the kind of basic basic criteria. And you won't often see people challenge the idea that we have some level of capacity to hurt each other. And you won't often see people challenge the idea that because we are different states, different people, we have a tendency to misunderstand each other and therefore to lie to each other and, and to mislead each other in all kinds of ways, both deliberately and by accident. But oftentimes people want to push against the scarcity element mm. and argue that we are post-scarcity in some way. And while there are some senses in which you could make that argument, I think especially in terms of, say, we have enough food to feed everybody in the world, but we just don't distribute it properly. I think, for instance, that is true. There are other senses in which scarcity continues. If you take seriously a, de a desire on the part of individuals or states to have more control, more power, over what happens. Because if we're talking about the ability to influence the future or to shape the future, that's something where if you want to have more control over that, it's an inherently scarce thing. If you want more control over that than, any, than other people, if that happens to be a priority for you, if you care about relative gains, then you're going to manufacture scarcity that for everyone else might not exist. Everyone else mm -hmm. might be content with an egalitarian decision-making structure. But if somebody in the room is not content, then there's going to be some effort to revise that structure. And I would argue in practice, there has never really been an institution which has managed to have a truly egalitarian decision-making structure, that there's always some level of distribution of power in any society or institutional formation. And oftentimes, those that proclaim most loudly how egalitarian they are, like, say, anarchist formations, have the sharpest concentrations of power, but those concentrations of power are invisibilized and informalized. Mm. And it's that distribution of power element, and often alongside that, the distribution of wealth and capital and resources that itself becomes a genesis of scarcity, independent of whether or not we on some technical level have enough food to feed the world. Mm. And because we can't get everyone to accept something else, we have to pay a lot of attention to the way our institutions are distributing power. And that means we have to look after our own power and make sure that people are not stripping us of it. And that forces us to behave in ways that are not as thoroughgoingly cooperative as we might otherwise like. Hmm. Because as long as there are some number of people who will take advantage of us if we don't, uh, and especially if you're thinking about a government where you know, if you don't put up good economic growth numbers in this day and age, it's very, very hard to win re-election. It's very, very hard. Mm. There are few forces more likely to lead to a government's electoral defeat than a recession. You know, it's right up there.
It's very, very difficult in that kind of environment to say, well, there's no scarcity. The people on the ground who are losing their jobs or losing their homes, they feel a scarcity even if their own survival is not necessarily threatened. It might not be that they're going to die, but they're being faced with conditions they can't accept. Mm. And that means they're going to look after their position. As, as well, they kind of should. And this is, I think, another you know, aspect of one of the confusions about, say, socialism. Um, a lot of people think that the purpose of this is to get people to behave altruistically. And that, you know, the purpose of, say, uh, of socialist projects is to get thoroughgoingly cooperative behavior. But the actual intention behind most Marxist variants of socialism is to get ordinary people to just stand up for themselves. And if they stand up for themselves and work together in doing that because they see that they have shared interests, then they might have some capacity to protect themselves from the ravages of those who would exploit them without limit. And so when, when constructivists describe a world where we don't have to behave in this exploitative way, I'm kind of imagining what that looks like for a worker, for someone who's currently subject to a lot of exploitation and someone who gets taken advantage of a lot. If you buy into that narrative, what that narrative is telling you is that you don't need to look after yourself. And I don't think that's true for most of the world's people. I don't think most of the world's people are in a position where they can embrace constructivism. Because most of the world's people are in a situation where they have to act like there's scarcity because if they don't, they will be relentlessly taken advantage of. Hmm. And for that reason, these perspectives have always tended to be most persuasive to the people who don't face that kind of scarcity constraint. Hmm. Real, real, uh, Real scarcity of housing, of health care that forces you to think in a more zero-sum way. And that's why inequality uh, and distribution have been such big themes in recent years. That's why exploitation is such a big theme for Marxists. It's why inequality has become a significant theme even for liberals. Mm. So yeah, I think it's only, scarcity only looks like something which has plausibly gone away if you are already pretty well off. Yeah. Uh, And the the mere fact that there is enough food to feed all the world's people, that there is potentially enough land to give everybody a home, that in itself doesn't translate into a politics where you don't have to look after yourself. It could only translate into a politics where you don't have to look after yourself if we actually had a distributive mechanism which ensured that people were getting that food and that housing. And the fact that they're not means that we do have to continue to some degree to look after ourselves. Yeah, I guess that the further constructivist complaint would be that uh, given that a lot of this depends on legitimacy um, and institutions, uh, while they do embody coercive power, are also Entities that need to legitimate themselves, need to tell stories to their members as to why the members should continue participating in them. Um, And 
that role of legitimacy on the one hand suggests that constructivism might have something to say, but I guess it's also worth remembering, firstly, that uh, the first political question that a legitimation story answers um, is, as Bernard Williams emphasised, um, the question of maintaining order, safety, as well as trust yeah. and cooperation, but order and safety and security. That's what the legitimation story primarily has to answer to. It has to tell a story as to why people are safe. And of course, because it's a story, because it's not just about rational calculation, you know, this is one of the other complaints of realism, that it doesn't take into account irrationality. But though the legitimation stories are involving you know, this emotional dimension to them, they still do primarily have to rest on something uh, material so long as there is scarcity. And um, that's It has the, to appear that the story could be true. Yeah. And there's something of the material in creating conditions under which a story looks plausibly like it might be true. Mm. And therefore, you can't just go into a world of, of storytelling. Mm. Yeah. And there's also the stories have to in some way relate to the reality. Yeah. And there's also the, the role of coercion in curtailing the, um, who the story applies to, um, who needs to be told a story, who's powerful enough that they need to be told why they should obey, who can't just be kept in the order by simple coercion. And um, there is that extent to which an order, um, though it does involve legitimation stories, those legitimation stories are sharply curtailed by who has enough power that they are worthy from the point of view of the order, of being told these stories. And I think there is an extent to which the liberal world order legitimates itself um, through liberalism to uh, a set of states that is definitively subglobal. It doesn't have to tell the same story to the whole world because there are lots of parts of the world that can easily be kept in the order simply by the threats of sanctions and capital flight. Mm. And that's why I say that I think domestic institutions only really matter in the states that are powerful enough to potentially undermine the survival of the order. Yes. Because in the developing states, those states are held by the terror of economic crisis mm. and therefore don't have a meaningful choice. And I think oftentimes a lot of Marxist perspectives on IR have looked to the developing world to be the genesis of the beginning of a global revolution, that it's the periphery globally, which is the basis for the change. And I don't think that's right in the same way that you could not look to the slaves in the Roman Empire to deliver social change. Yeah. It was never the slaves that delivered the change. It, were, it was the classes that were between the slaves and the rich. Yeah that had some level of ability to interface with the state, yeah. that had the ability to potentially challenge it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, in Marxist theory, the lumpen proletariat is traditionally the group of people who are so battered by the system that they're not in position to challenge it. Uh, 
with, say, the industrial proletariat at the next level, having, say, unions such that it can have some level of collective impact, then the professional class, uh, the managerial class on top of that, which has unions and also has scarce skills that are necessary to legitimate the state and keep it running. Um, and then, of course, on top of that, the, the actual, actual owners of capital. Uh, and uh, this is a little bit tangential, but I think one of the difficulties of our contemporary context is that what was once called the proletariat is increasingly being rendered part of the lumpen proletariat, that it's being denied the civil society organizations and union structures and so on, that it would have previously used to challenge for power. Uh, and therefore, state legitimation stories are increasingly about the professional class, but not the worker. The worker increasingly is not someone the state feels a need to talk to anymore. Mm. And that makes it hard to articulate any kind of form of worker politics yeah. for for Marxists. And there's a post-colonial spin on this, the worker as subaltern. Um, right. As Spivak put it, can, can the sub subaltern speak? And Spivak is referring to uh, predominantly post-colonial peoples as subalterns as the people without history, as Eric Wolf put it, um, the people who the order isn't trying to legitimate itself to and just keeps in the order through pure coercion. And so in this sense, the subaltern, um, there's a question over whether it can speak and whether it can use its voice um, because the order just can coerce it into staying in place. And yeah, that, there's a sense in which today the working class has, uh, through a couple of decades of um, deunionization, deindustrialization, and the rise of precarious employment, that the decimation of forms of collectivity that could have united um, exploited classes against. Um, the civil oligarchs in advanced capitalist democracies, um, that collectivity has been, um, in some senses, so thoroughly decimated that uh, the working class, or at least the uh, part of the working class that is, as Guy Standing put it, the precariat, um, that the part of the working class that really is so alienated that either doesn't engage in politics or occasionally engages in politics if it can, um, but uh, there are still no good options. <laughs> there are the, you know, the, the centrists and there, there are the reactionaries. There are also the, the socialists, but it's been difficult, uh, I think for the reasons you've just given, Benjamin, that given the professionalisation of the left, these, these simultaneous processes that have really, I guess, torn the working class asunder, both um, the rise of the precariat, the rise of more, pre more precarity, but also the rise of more professionalism in the upper working class, the rise of the professional managerial class and the separation, I guess, between these bits of the 
working class, between the people who could theoretically unite to challenge civil oligarchs' domination of advanced capitalist democracies, that possibility is really being threatened by this separation, and in particular by the fact that given this separation, the left, instead of being um, the property of the um, precariat, instead of being uh, staffed by people in the precariat, it's not because people who are really, really exploited or hyper-exploited by the system are precisely the people who don't have time for politics. And the people who have time for politics are the professionals. But the professionals, because of the separation, no longer, no longer speak in a language that is understandable. And so the question arises, can the subaltern, the subaltern as the precariat, as the I- lower working classes speak? And this bit about language is, I think, especially good at getting at this. And I think it is the core, the core insight of post-colonial theory. In a developing state, it's very clear that the limpid proletariat, the subaltern, they are the people who don't speak a Western language and therefore cannot participate in the discussion. Mm. And their ideas only enter the discussion in academic seminars through academics who take an interest in their languages. And even those academics mistranslate everything because they understand their languages from within their own Western paradigm. Um, that, that is a quite straightforward issue of, you know, can the subaltern speak, you know, literally, can anything be communicated from this population mm-hmm. in words that we can understand? But I think that we, we have that same problem here in the sense that the professional class and the oligarchs speak a language which, while being English, is so different, it, both in the terms that are used and in the way the terms are understood from the language of workers in Western societies, that there is increasingly a functional language barrier between the two that is not at all different in function from the language barrier which separates the limpid proletariat in developing states from the wealthier sections of society. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think all of this kind of gets at, you, know, you can look at it in two directions. In the developing country context, in, even if they could speak, how much difference would it make? Because there's so yeah. little power to deal with international institutions from that particular political vantage point. Mm. That I think even the leaders, even the very wealthy and very educated leaders of developing states, uh, while some of them identify with the system because it's what's made them wealthy and powerful, uh, even they are not in position to, even if they want to, meaningfully and sustainably challenge it over the long term. But this becomes a real obstacle, I think, in the Western states where there is still some level of capacity to potentially challenge the international system, uh, this language barrier becomes one of the main reasons those challenges struggled to come to the fore mm. in our politics. Yeah. But this, this verges on drifting into a much broader discussion about you know, problems with co- the contemporary left and, uh, changes in in class structure in Western societies over time, which is somewhat tangential from our topic. Uh, 
I think I think we've had some good fun here and we've managed to spend a little bit of time playing around in all of the different camps. I, I think we should finish with one last thing because, of course, there are different views within the realist camp and we didn't really discuss different views within realism. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind that John Mearsheimer is considered an offensive realist in the sense that John thinks the optimal strategy for a state is to become as powerful as possible. Hmm. You can contrast that with, say, Kenneth Waltz, a defensive realist who thinks that states should try to sustain a balance of power yeah. that is stable rather than maximize their own position. Because in trying to maximize their own position, they'll attract negative attention from their peers. Uh, in terms of how do, how do these strategies manifest in a contemporary context, there are also smaller differences. So, for instance, John is is what he calls an offshore balancer. That means that John thinks that the United States should not try to take and hold territory all over the world or even to become militarily involved in, in operating permanent bases all over the world, but should instead act to intervene if a pure competitor is rising to challenge the United States. Uh, particularly if that peer competitor is rising in one of the, as John puts it, three areas of the world that matter, which for John are the areas of the world where there's a sufficient concentration of wealth and resources to support a genuine peer competitor, which for him are Europe, East Asia, and the Persian Gulf. Mm. Uh, that contrasts, of course, with more isolationist realist strategies, which argue that it's not in the American interest to get involved really at all internationally, mm. and with what John calls global domination theories or perimeter defense in the old Cold War language, which argue that every part of the world matters to the United States and that the United States should be thickly involved everywhere. Mm. Uh, that, that, that gets at a few of the core differences. Uh, of course, also notably, you know, when we talk about why is there peace around the world, liberal theorists will often point to the institutions or the norms or the spread of democracy. The realist answer for why there's more peace is largely nuclear weapons mm. and the sheer power of the United States relative to other states, that the gap is too big for other states to imagine that they could individually or in any realistic coalition contend with the United States. And then there's the fact that because of nuclear weapons, the cost of going to war would be enormously high. Yeah. Those are the arguments realists tend to make for explaining the peace. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's both technology and polarity, both you know, the strength of the military technology, the fact that nuclear weapons are so deadly, um, mm -hmm. that creates mutually assured destruction among nuclear powers that disincentivizes going to war, but also the issue of polarity, how many great powers there are in the system. And there is this big debate in realism about what kinds of polarity are more conducive to peace. And you know, there are some who are uh, insistent that you need a hegemon, that you need unipolarity and nothing else works. Um, there are others who think it's like Morgenthau, who argues that it was um, multipolarity, particularly the kind of multipolarity that endured under the um, Congress of Vienna, the Concert of Europe system in the 19th century, where there is a rough balance among the major powers in Europe. There are others who emphasise bipolarity, 
And Mearsheimer kind of draws on each of these threads, but because he's a because he's an offensive structural realist, um, he is inclined to think that um, though um, multipolarity is worse than bipolarity, because you can get a balance in bipolarity, it's easier to balance between, say, the US and the Soviet Union in the Cold War than it um, than it was to create a balance in the 19th century, though a balance was created. So he argues that balanced multipolarity is better than unbalanced multipolarity, the 19th century being mostly balanced multipolarity, and then the world wars representing unbalanced multipolarity and bipolarity being better than both of these. Uh, He also, I think, has a nuanced view, however, about unipolarity. He does argue that unipolarity, the dominance of the US after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, because the US... Um, is what he calls the sole regional hegemon in um, at the moment. It's the sole great power that has dominance over a region of the world, in the US's case, the Western Hemisphere. But Mershaw- Often in John's speak, he'll use the expression, the sole pole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there, there is, I think, I've been thinking about this recently, because he does... Uh, distinguish, I think, he doesn't make this too explicit, but, but between, I think, um, stable unipolarity, the kind of polarity where you know, there is a sole pole, there isn't any um, even potential competitor. Um, I think he distinguishes that implicitly from uh, more unstable unipolarity, where there is um, either one great power in the system, or if it's a global system today, one regional hegemon in the system. Um, but if there's a potential peer competitor, a potential alternative um, or additional regional hegemon, then that's the moment when the unipolarity tips into danger zone. And I, I think he would argue that right now, though the, uh, the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia in recent years, um, has um, made the world order less tilted in the US's favour. Um, he does argue that neither Russia nor China are regional hegemons, or likely to be, but, the, but China could, in theory, if conditions permit, make a bid for regional hegemony for dominance in um, Asia. Um, and that possibility, the possibility of the system tipping from unipolarity towards um, either Chinese-led unipolarity or bipolarity, that the very possibility of the US um, you know, losing power relative to China and the system becoming less balanced makes the current unipolar order um, a lot less stable than it was in the 90s. Um, there is some question, of course, of whether the uh, unipolar era has end. But I think I, I think Mirsheim is right that the US does by and large remain the regional hegemon. There isn't any other state in the Western Hemisphere that can really challenge the US's dominance there. Um, but I think he's also right that the potential of a Chinese regional hegemon makes um, the possibility of the system tipping into something a lot less balanced and a lot more conflictual a real one. But I think, of course, that does depend on a factor he doesn't emphasise much. And perhaps this might be a, 
A good theme to end on, we haven't really discussed this much so far this episode, but climate change, whether climate change will really decimate China or whether it won't. And of course, if it does, um, and China seems in a less good position um, geoecologically than the US, it's close to the equator, it looks like it's more vulnerable to drought than the US. You know, the US um, has a more geographically propitious position than China when it comes to climate change. And a lot of the questions that Mishima asks, you know, will there be a US-Chinese war? And he does admit this, it is contingent, it is a question of possibility. It's not clear whether there will be some kind of um, outright conflict between the US and China. And it's not even clear that unipolarity will necessarily end. But what it does depend on is the strength of China. If China continues its rise, and if, um, for one reason or another, it manages to get through the coming ecological crises, um, or perhaps just before it hits, there could be a moment where the order tips into something, not just, uh, you know, in crisis mode for, um, you know, lots of advanced capitalist democracies, not just challenging to neoliberalism, but challenging to... Uh, the very prospect of there being relative peace at all, you know, that prospect of stability may well fade as the distribution of power changes. Yeah, a couple of interesting thoughts uh, coming out of, of what you're saying there, uh, perhaps, perhaps to wrap up on. Uh, first, first, I think John has a rather nuanced view of unipolarity because on the one hand, John thinks that when there is no real contestation of the salt poles position that is the point of greatest of greatest stability mm. in many respects but also because the salt pole faces no competition it is as john says free to roam mm. and because it's free to roam it will stick its nose in everybody's business uh, and so when john talks about the united states in the 90s and the 2000s he is quite critical of how the United States kind of becomes fat and happy and just starts making dumb interventions all over the place that are not very strategic because it's not held to any competitive standard by another state. And I think to some degree, John is pleased at the possibility that the United States might come under some disciplining effect from, if not the rise of China, the perception of the rise of China. Mm. I think that there is some some nuance that other direction in John's thought, because John has, has been so critical of U.S. foreign policy since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The end of the Cold War seems to have caused the United States to, from John's point of view, behave in an undisciplined way. Mm. And I think I think that's kind of the other the other side of that equation for John. Uh, on climate change, I think this is an excellent note to end on, and I think it really throws into relief how different the schools are. Most of the time when you hear talk about climate change, especially in the United States or Europe, you're hearing it from a liberal perspective. And that liberal perspective thinks of the solution to climate change as some kind of institutional cooperative arrangement. Mm. And, of course, what we've seen over the last 30 years of attempts at solving climate change with cooperative institutional arrangements is that they have not worked. Mm. Outside of the European Union, there has been no real sustained cut in emissions. Uh, and with many states increasing emissions over 
the 2010 level or even the 1990, you know, the, the 1990 and the 2010 level, uh, despite at different points in the last 30 years, different plans calling for reductions relative to those levels. Uh, and I think one of the symptoms of why is that you very rarely see anybody talk about how climate change is likely to affect different states differently. And part of the reason why you don't see this is that most of the theorizing about how to deal with climate change comes from liberal perspectives, which is based on absolute gains and how everybody's doing. And I think we could explain a lot of the discrepancies in behavior on climate if we look at how states imagine they will be affected in a relative sense by climate change. There are definitely some states that anticipate that they're not going to lose out a lot mm -hmm. and uh, that they will see relative gains in comparison with rivals that have less favorable geography. Mm -hmm. And I think to some degree, the United States is an example of this, especially the states which are in between the mountain ranges that are quite far from the ocean. Mm. Uh, but there's some level of division in the United States because there are some states that really would be negatively affected by flooding and other states which really wouldn't. Mm. And then if you look at the rest of the world, the state which never submits a climate plan, which never participates in any meaningful way in any of these discussions, is Russia. And I think the reason for that is pretty clear. Russia is a petrol state. It has an economy which is dependent on the continued viability of oil and gas. It doesn't have a lot of population near the ocean. It's very cold. A lot of its economic land value would rise in a warming world. And these are the kinds of unfortunate considerations we have to think about if we're going to come up with a climate strategy that can actually work. It has to account for the fact that states have very different interests with respect to this. We do not live in a world where everyone has the same interest in preventing climate change. Some states have much greater interests than others. States that don't face an immediate poverty pressure have a much greater interest in dealing with climate change because they don't have short-term crises that are more pressing. States that have a lot of water near them have much more reason to care. Uh, states that don't export oil or gas and import a lot of it have a lot more reason to care because it would be in many ways beneficial to them to be less dependent on foreign oil and gas. Mm. Uh, these differences in how different states experience climate change, and the only one that's really been considered is, is the poor country, rich country, global north, global south division. There's been some discussion of that, but a lot of the other differences are not talked about very much. And I think this is in part why we have really struggled to come up with a way of, of dealing with this, because we are not taking seriously the extent to which there are conflicts of interest that are meaningful to the states that are making these decisions, regardless of whether or not we think they ought to be meaningful. Perhaps that's one of the closest com commonalities between um, realism and Marxism in international relations that the realists emphasise its military and economic capabilities, um, like whether you have nuclear weapons that determines your relative power in the system. Um, while Marxists, though they do focus on class, uh, 
for Marx, the most important factor in history is technology, the development of productive forces. And that, for Marx, is really what lies at the heart of things and what drives forward social development. And I guess, you know, applying that fusion of realism and Marxism to the international system, perhaps we could say that if nuclear weapons remain a stabiliser of the international system, oil has underpinned um, a lot of the global political economy um, since 45. It really has been at the heart of advanced capitalist states' energy policies. But it has also, um, as it has developed over time and as oil has started looking like might someday run out. Um, you know, the discovery of new um, oil fields um, reached a peak in the 60s. And though we haven't reached um, you know, peak oil quite yet, we have, um, as of 2005, reached peak conventional oil. And it was that moment that Helen Thompson identifies as one of the tipping points um, between um, the order of the 90s and the um, inflationary pressures that um, rising oil prices um, had on the uh, financial crisis and on tipping the world into a financial crisis. Um, and oil remains that thing, as you point out, Benjamin, that divides states that um, perhaps do or could care about climate change from those states which... Um, really rely on oil. And that's an awful lot of states. It's not just um, oil producing states um, that we might imagine, the OPEC states in the Middle East. It's also Russia. It's also the US, which um, has become more antagonistic with Saudi Arabia due to concerns over US shale production. And you know, there's also France and Germany, which remain quite dependent on um, Russian gas. And so Fossil fuels remain something that um, aren't just related to climate change. They're also um, both a stabiliser and, more often today, a destabiliser of geopolitics. But because technology, both military and economic, both nuclear weapons and um, fossil fuels, are fundamental to state survival, while, you know, while technology can destabilise the system, technology fundamentally is what states, above all else, have to maintain if they are to survive. And in that sense, sometimes systems become systematically dysfunctional. In order to survive, they need to produce the seeds of their own undoing. And I think that's certainly the case, perhaps, with, um, with the development of technology under capitalism today. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, it, it really is a whole different world if you're a European Union country that imports a lot of oil and gas. You really do not have the same kind of stake in maintaining the global oil infrastructure mm. as a state which gets a significant percentage, a non-trivial percentage of its output from oil and gas like Canada, uh, and certainly a state that is heavily dependent on it like a Russia or Iran or Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and I think as we've been going through all of this, we've seen that while there are particular elements, particular causal forces that might be more attractive to us uh, in general, very often we are helped by taking into account some of the things that each of the theories doesn't 
focus around. Mm. You know, that technology matters and you can't just not talk about it. Class matters and you can't just not talk about it. The state matters and you can't just not talk about it. Mm. Um, all of these things have their, have their place. Uh, but I think rather than, uh, there's a tendency in social theory to have theories that talk about how this one cause mm. that has been understated is really important. A lot of books and a lot of academic careers have been built off saying this one thing that everyone's been ignoring is really important. Mm. But in the long run, the most valuable contributions are those which help us see what the priority is, what the relationship is between different causes. Right. Yeah. And that requires a level of complexity that is hard to attain in books that are about how everybody has left off this thing or that thing. But the priority, as you point out, is quite fundamental. It's often tempting to either emphasise one cause um, or emphasise every cause as equal to every other cause. Um, and so we get often this dichotomy between extreme simplicity and extreme complexity in social sciences. But it is perhaps some kind of, um, I'll use the word again, golden mean between uh, the complexity and the simplicity that we need, a theory that... Um, both identifies what matters, that has some kind of priority, but also acknowledges the role of the lower priority things. But it is crucial that we have that balance and don't tip either into emphasising either one thing and one thing alone, or everything mattering without any clear priority about, when it comes down to it, what the states prioritise. We finally got the golden mean! <laughs> I was waiting for it. I fist pumped when we got it. We always have to get a golden yeah. mean. And I think that's exactly right. We need a golden mean between monocausal theories that are too reductive and theories that treat everything as so enmeshed and so complicated that they can't meaningfully offer you anything in terms of explanatory power. Uh, you know, John is right to say that theories always must simplify. The trick is to be as complicated as you can be while still telling us something useful mm. and that balance is so hard to strike but it's so worthwhile to continue trying to to get at it trying to get those those layers of complexity in yeah yeah okay i think that's that's about enough for today mm. unless you've got anything else i think that covers all the bases yeah all right so thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have a very wonderful and very fabulous rest of your day. You can, if you'd like to support the show, find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash politicaltheory101. And uh, I, I got us up on Google Play. We're now on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and SoundCloud. So that's a pretty hefty list of places to go. Uh, and we appreciate your listening. And again, have just a fabulous, fabulous rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.